From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Elijah McClain died one year ago today after an encounter with Aurora police officers. We'll get perspective on the many questions that are still unanswered a year later. Then we'll check in with two of the delegates from Colorado taking part in the Republican National Convention, including a first-timer. I mean, of course, it would have been nice to go to the actual convention and uh, you know get fired up and all that, but we're doing a pretty good job. We're doing it on a local level. Also, when it was built in the 1920s, Lincoln Hills was the only Black-owned resort west of the Mississippi. It drew famous artists from around the country. Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Lena Horne. We'll talk with three generations for whom Lincoln Hills has been a getaway. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Elijah McClain died one year ago today after an encounter with Aurora police. And now, a year after his death, a lot of questions remain, as his name becomes a rallying cry in the calls for racial and social justice reform. CPR's Allison Sherry and Denverites Esteban Hernandez are here with perspective. Hi to both of you. Good morning, Avery. Good morning. Elijah McClain was walking home from a convenience store last August when police officers approached him after getting a report about a suspicious person in the area. He was not armed and had not committed a crime. He was wearing a ski mask because of anemia. Police said he resisted arrest. Officers restrained him twice using a carotid hold, which restricts blood to the brain. Paramedics then injected him with ketamine. He went into cardiac arrest and died days later in the hospital. Allison, the officers were initially cleared of any wrongdoing, but now, a year later, there are seven separate investigations underway into what happened. Can you break it down for us? Yes, there are local, state, and federal investigations, and I'll touch on the first five, and we'll talk about the other two later. Um, There are two investigations out of State Attorney General Phil Weiser's office. One came from an executive order by Governor Polis for Weiser to review what happened to McLean and determine whether individual police officers or paramedics could be criminally prosecuted for his death. Polis decided to do this after the Adams County DA initially cleared the officer of wrongdoing. The second investigation is also out of A.G. Weiser's office, and he's looking into the patterns and practices within the Aurora Police Department to see if there's anything troublesome overall going on there. Then there are two local investigations. The city of Aurora is looking into how police and paramedics handled McLean's arrest, whether they broke department rules, whether there are better policies to put in place. The other city investigation is going to look into the police department's use of force, potential discriminatory practices. I think Esteban is going to talk about that more in a minute because he's covering that. And that fifth investigation is a federal one. It's being led by a trio of agencies, including the FBI, and they're reviewing whether the officers violated McLean's civil rights when attempting to detain him. And Esteban, like Allison mentioned, you talked with the civil rights attorney who was tapped to lead Aurora's independent investigation. What did he tell you? Uh, his name is Jonathan Smith. He's executive director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. His past work includes leading a team that investigated the Ferguson Police Department after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown six years ago. Uh, he thinks there's a real chance to have what he called a genuine conversation about moving forward uh, on addressing, quote, the inequity that has been created by the way our criminal system operates. He also notes his investigation team will need to be extremely careful not to do anything to interfere with the state's criminal investigation. Allison, the state has also launched a couple of official investigations into the use of ketamine in light of McLean's death. 
Why now? And what's the thinking behind that? Well, and, and um, you know, I don't think a lot of people probably know this. I didn't. That the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment regulates ketamine use by paramedics in non-hospital settings across the state. And they confirmed to us that they'd received a n- numerous complaints, a number of complaints starting in June about the use of ketamine um, in Elijah McLean's death, if, if that had anything to do with his death. And so they launched an investigation specifically looking into what happened to McLean. Then the department announced over this last weekend that they're going to conduct a review of all uses of ketamine in pre-hospital, non-hospital settings around the state. You know, there are some 80 ambulance companies and paramedics that have this permission to use ketamine. So this would be a review of all of that. And in the numbers, we did find that the use of ketamine has jumped a lot. Between 2018 and 2019, the number of ketamine administrations to people doubled, though it slowed down a little in 2020. And we've also found that there have been complications, medical complications, in more than 150 of those ketamine administrations, including in the case of Elijah McLean. Um, they're counting that. Um, though you know, most of those complications did not, the vast majority did not cause death. And just to remind people, McLean went into cardiac arrest after a ketamine injection that was higher than the recommended dosage for his body weight, though we're still not sure what caused his death. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. And what are the reasons to use ketamine in the first place? Well, ketamine is a sedative. It has several medical uses, but in the case of police and paramedics out on call, they have that special permission from the state to use ketamine for, quote, profound agitation or excited delirium. And that's usually associated with combativeness, people who may pose a risk to paramedics out on the scene. And they use ketamine as a quick way to control a person because it acts really quickly. And I talked, you know, to a pharmacologist out of state who wasn't aware of the McLean investigation. I tried to find someone who sort of was, you know, independent. And he told me that ketamine generally is a forgiving drug, that it's not considered hugely dangerous. It's also been used on a street as a clubbing drug. But this use of ketamine for excited delirium agitation is now under review statewide. Mm. And Esteban, as we said, McLean's name, it's now synonymous with demands for police reform and calls for social justice. You're at a celebration of his life Sunday in Denver. What did people tell you about this moment in time? So Candace Bailey, one of the event organizers, told me the idea was to recognize the value of life and to honor everyone who has died at the hands of police and because of systematic injustice. Uh, it was the only gathering to receive the blessing of McLean's mother, Shanine. Uh, there was another event in the works, but she ended up pulling her support for it. Um, I also spoke with a woman named uh, Midian Holmes. She was there to call on justice for McLean and for McLean's mother. And when I asked her, you know, what does justice mean in this case? She said it meant, uh, quote, arresting, convicting and sentencing uh, the officers involved in McLean's death, uh, she believes that's the only way Shanine McLean can get, uh, quote, a sense of peace after losing her son. And Esteban, you mentioned Shanine McLean, Elijah's mom. She doesn't necessarily want him to be the face of a movement. Can you expound on that? Yeah, so I um, I haven't, uh, yeah, I haven't been to some of the, uh, the, the, the protests, um, but I know that uh, some of the ones that, that, that we have been to, there have been... Um, uh, you know, they've been protests. This one was more of a celebration, and we spoke briefly, but I didn't really get a chance to uh, speak to her because she's taking a break from the media. But she mentioned how she doesn't want activists using her son's names for their own purpose, and she also asked people uh, using her son's name on their Twitter usernames to remove his name. And Allison, you've also been investigating Elijah McClain's cause of death report. What did you find? 
So one of the big things about this story is that McLean's cause of death has been this giant question mark throughout the investigation. His cause of death in the official autopsy signed by the Adams County coroner is, quote, undetermined. And how rare is that? Well, it's it's pretty rare in Colorado. Fewer than 1% of all deaths in Colorado in 2019 had an undetermined cause and manner of death. And so I wanted to look into you know, sort of why and, and what that what, what, what happened there. And I started with an open records request into emails between the Adams County coroner and the Aurora Police Department. And we found in about 50 pages of correspondence that the Adams County coroner met with Aurora Police before deciding that Elijah McLean's cause of death could be undetermined. And so we know that police and prosecutors were in the room during the autopsy. We know that the pathologist who performed the autopsy was leaning towards an undetermined cause of death before he had some information from Aurora Police Department, like witness statements and video. And, you know, we don't have much more context um, because no one is talking to me about this story. Um, But we do know that the coroner didn't seek a second opinion on the autopsy which the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners does in her own office when there's an undetermined cause of death. And why is a death determination so important? Well, on the police accountability front, it's hugely important. You know, um, Adams County DA Dave Young, who initially investigated this, actually cited the fact that there was no homicide determination as one of the reasons why he couldn't charge police officers who arrested McLean. And I can quote from his decision letter. It says, the cause of death, the cause of Mr. McLean's death was undetermined. Therefore, the evidence does not support a conclusion that Mr. McLean's death was a direct result of any particular action of any particular individual. And I have found that um, in interviewing some people after I reported my story that, you know, prosecutors across the state, some police departments are looking and reviewing how they are working together. The coroners are working on, you know, are they should they have officers in the room when those officers may have caused the death? Is that too much, you know? It, it, it made it may not look very independent. There are also some state lawmakers looking at changing that in, in state law. And Stamon, since McLean's death, the city of Aurora has banned the use of chokeholds like the one that was used on him. Yeah. So in Aurora, the law passed by the city council defined, uh, defines what's banned as a carotid hold uh, as a method, quote, by which an officer bends or attempts to bend his or her arm around a subject's neck applying pressure on either side of the windpipe, but not on the windpipe itself, end quote. Um, So the technique had been banned by the police chief, uh, Vanessa Wilson, but the council's decision codified it into law, uh, making it harder for a future chief to change it. And Allison, the state's taken it even further, banning chokeholds and enacting other changes? Yeah. Colorado's new police accountability bill uh, is among the broadest pieces of legislation passed in the country in the wake of the George Floyd death. It passed earlier this summer as police brutality protesters were literally standing outside the Capitol and chanting. Um, And it did a couple of things. One, it started the state down this road into crafting strict rules on when officers can use force against citizens, particularly lethal force, like what circumstances have to happen for them to pull out a gun or use a carotid hold on 
someone's neck during an arrest. I think some advocates were hoping it would be stronger, but it's a start of stricter rules on this force front. Two, the new law makes it easier for people to sue individual police officers. Officers found to have acted in bad faith could be on the hook for up to $25,000 in a civil settlement. And a few other things quickly. The law bans chokeholds, as you mentioned. It requires body cameras statewide, and it will require police officers to be more transparent. And they're going to have to report to the state attorney general about when and who they stop, when they use force on the job. So there will eventually be a database um, of how cops across the state are conducting themselves. And we should note that the family of Elijah McLean filed a civil rights lawsuit in federal court against the city of Aurora, as well as several police officers and paramedics they believe are responsible for their death. Allison Esteban, thank you so much for joining us. Esteban Hernandez is reporter for Denbright. Allison Sherry is CPR's criminal justice reporter. They've both been covering developments in Elijah McLean's case. The 23-year-old Aurora man died one year ago today after an encounter with police. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Tonight's a big night for the Republican Party. President Trump will speak at the White House, formally accepting the presidential nomination for a second term. Vera Ortegon plans to be in the audience. She's a Republican National Committee woman from Pueblo and a delegate to this year's Republican convention. Vera, welcome. Thank you for inviting me. What is the most important message you want to hear from the president tonight? Well, I want to make sure that the president uh, tells us his path to restore the economy to what it was before. We all know that everything is about the economy, and we were enjoying an incredible, the best economy in the world, and in the United States before the coronavirus crisis happened. So I just want to know what, what are his plans to restore uh, the economy that we had before and even make it even better. And you're a small business owner. What would help you economically? Regulations. It's all about regulations, making sure that he decreases, that he gives us enough room for us to be able to do our work and to make sure that there is confidence in the people, that the economy is better, that the virus is under control. And so people can go out again and go out back to work and go out to spending and go out to enjoying their usual lifestyle that they were doing before. It is important that people feel better, that they know that things are under control. Now, you were in Charlotte, North Carolina, earlier this week for the convention. It's the third you've attended, and it was very different. Only a few hundred delegates from across the nation were there, including six from Colorado. The state's other 31 delegates stayed home and voted by proxy. How do you wrestle up any enthusiasm with a smaller crowd? Well, first of all, it's not only the number of delegates, you know, it's the alternates, the guests, the media, it goes on and on and on. So, yes, we went from two, over 2,000 people to about 336 people. But I have to tell you, the energy, the enthusiasm, it was just very real, especially since we were blessed to have the President Trump and the Vice President uh, Pence to come to visit us in Charlotte. Now, nationally, President Trump trails in the polls. Colorado's biggest voting bloc now is unaffiliated and then Democrats. Do you think Trump can win in the state? 
Oh, absolutely. His uh, internal numbers are telling us something slightly different than uh, what the national polls are telling us. Keep in mind that in Colorado, Trump has been extremely great to Colorado. He created the Space Force Department. He put it in Colorado Springs. That's thousands of uh, jobs coming our way. The Bureau of Land Management, who has always been the headquarters in Washington, D.C., is now in Grand Junction. And then when it comes to energy, all the regulations that have been broken down for the fracking would benefit with hundreds of thousands of jobs in Colorado. So, yes, we're going to have to work hard, absolutely. But uh, I'm very uh, optimistic that uh, we will win that Colorado. Now, people have strong feeling about the environment and conservation in Colorado. Do you think some of the environmental regulations that President Trump has eased might hurt him with voters here? I don't think so, because Republicans, uh, we care about the environment. We conserve the environment. Uh, we don't just speak about it. We take actions. I don't think that's going to be a problem. President Trump won your hometown of Pueblo four years ago. What message resonated with voters in your area then that you think he could use now? So, yeah, we, we told them. We let them know that they indeed he they made some promises. Those promises are now kept. And uh, we were looking then for the, a businessman, not a politician. People realize that it, it always starts in your pocketbook. Your family owns medical clinics in Pueblo. Uh, what brought about your passion for politics? Well, it's just uh, I feel that uh, you need, in order to for your voice to be heard, you really need to be involved and you need to listen and you have to learn. You need to know what the candidates stand for. But what really, truly got me into politics is water. Uh, as you know, water uh, is very important to Pueblo. The Port of Waterworks is an elected uh, position by the people. So uh, they asked me to run. I won that race. And from there, we went on uh, to bigger and better things, I think. And then for President Trump, there is a lot of criticism of his personal style, some of his public statements, his use of Twitter. Is that a concern for you? No, they, I used to live in New York, and that's where I went to school. So I know New Yorkers. He is a New Yorker. And the, and I have to say to you, uh, you know, every time I see the president, I say, Mr. President, keep tweeting. It is true that uh, some tweets you say, oh, my God. But uh, the majority are fantastic because this is the way for us to know what the president is thinking or working on. And what's the biggest difference that the president has made for you? For me, is uh, the economy. And, and of course, uh, for as a Hispanic uh, person, I want to make sure that the borders are secure. I came to this country legally. Then I went the route of the naturalization process. Uh, securing the borders is very important because just like a, you don't leave or I don't leave my door open in my house so people can come and go as they please, so does the United States. The United States don't need to leave their doors open. Uh, they need to be invited in. And if they do that, there is no problem. And as you say, you're, you've immigrated. You're from Colombia originally. Under President Trump, some families have been separated at the border. Is that something that you approve of? It is the process. It's the regulations. It was uh, separated, too, under the, the previous administration. But that's the problem with the press. They don't look at the other one. This is what I 
There were fewer under President Obama, right, though? Whatever fewer, but it was built. It was studied. The trend was built. uh, It was done under the President Obama. And has your experience with immigration, has that influenced your interest in politics? Uh, Not really. Uh, The immigration, no. You know, I thank the immigration process because that has allowed me uh, to be a naturalized citizen. But it has to be done correctly, as I mentioned before. Vera, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, go Trump. Vera Ortegon lives in Pueblo. She's a Republican National Committee woman and a delegate to the National Convention that wraps up tonight with a speech by President Donald Trump. She's also a former member of the Pueblo City Council. This isn't quite the Republican National Convention Keenan Orkut hoped for. His first experience as a convention delegate has played out largely over the computer. They've had Zoom meetings, just kind of local meetings with Colorado politicians and people who are now running for office first time or, or running for re-election. Every night this week, I've attended those. As far as that, I really haven't been able to do a whole lot of delegate kind of things, which is kind of disappointing, but that's just how it is. In the age of COVID, only six of Colorado's 37 delegates went to the actual convention in Charlotte, North Carolina, or could voted by proxy and stayed home on the family ranch near the town of Rush on the Eastern Plains. The rookie delegate is a former Marine, and he wants to be a lawyer and run for office. He's drawn to Trump by a characteristic that infuriates the president's critics. It honestly was his demeanor. I liked that he kind of come out swinging, and he really didn't talk in that vague double speak that a lot of politicians do. I like the bluntness. I like the directness. And uh, the guy's got skin like a rhino. Nothing bothers the guy at all. <laughs> he admits the president sometimes takes things too far. The one instance that really bothered him was something Trump said early in the pandemic. When he was asked if he took responsibility for the virus and everything like that, and he said he didn't take responsibility at all. And I believe that he should have taken responsibility then because the country is his responsibility. But just a couple of weeks ago now, he did say that he he uh, takes responsibility for it. So he did kind of correct himself on that. When Trump gives his speech to accept the Republican nomination, Orkut wants a clear plan for what's ahead. Getting the economy back on track, getting people back to work, kids back to school, you know, how we can kind of go back to being normal again. Traditionally, all the convention hoopla is supposed to get delegates excited and ready to work in the fall. I mean, of course, it would have been nice to go to the actual convention and, and uh, you know get fired up and all that, but we're doing a pretty good job. We're doing it on a local level. Ken Orkut is a first-time delegate to the Republican National Convention. He lives on his family's ranch on the Eastern Plains. When we come back, a conversation between three generations about a nearly century-old retreat in Colorado that holds a unique place in history. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. To all of our supporters, thank you so much for your ongoing partnership with Colorado Public Radio. You know that a free and independent press is vital to the health of our democracy. Even during challenging times, CPR is dedicated to covering stories and issues with the depth, diversity, and thoughtfulness that you have come to depend on. However you choose to support CPR in the days and months ahead, please know that you are truly appreciated. You make it possible.
When it was built in the 1920s, Lincoln Hills was the only resort west of the Mississippi built by and for black people. Winks Lodge drew visitors from across the country. In the summers, dozens of black girls attended a YMCA's Camp Nazoni, and it was included in the Green Book, a travel guide that highlighted places safe for black people during times of intense segregation in the 1930s. Winks Lodge closed in the 1960s, but Lincoln Hills is still a getaway for many Denver families who bought land there. Gary Jackson, a Denver District Court judge, joins us with his mom, Nancy Jackson, who started going to Lincoln Hills in 1926 when she was just four years old. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Mrs. Jackson, your father was one of the first to build a cabin at Lincoln Hills. He bought four lots for $40 each in 1928. He actually wrote a letter to the Lincoln Hills company that he was so surprised by how beautiful it was, even though the price was so ridiculously low, he feared the site would be inferior to others. What does the land look like? Oh, the land? There were not a lot of trees on it. It was kind of barren, lots of rocks. Lots of pretty wild flowers, and it was on a hill, a great big rock on the, on the in the middle of the land, and then down from the land was the, the creek. And how did it develop? What does it look like now? Very, very pretty. Lots of trees, lots of aspen, lots of pine trees, lots of flowers, real green. It's beautiful now. Very nice. And this cabin, it was part of a larger development. What did the Lincoln Hills Country Club development become? How did it earn a national reputation as a really great summer recreation spot? Now, my grandfather, when he first bought the land, he wanted it to be a country club for Black people. That That was his plan. And that's why he built more than one cabin up there. And then, of course, Winks went up and built his cabin, and he was the one that had lodges for rent and for people to come up and stay at his lodge. And he's the one that had the place for the music and dance and so forth. But our little cabin, we went up just for enjoyment, to spend the night and uh, stay up there over the weekend. And to help us understand how special Lincoln Hills was, can you tell us what segregation was like in Denver in the 20s and 30s? Well, you know, when we were kids, everything was fun for us. The, you know, the parents had to deal with what was going on in the city. But uh, we were the only ones in our block, only black people. And we played with our cousins. Our cousins lived next door. And was Lincoln Hills a special place for you? Lincoln Hills was a second home to us. Because we went up almost every weekend. We'd take our cousins. If we had room, we'd take our dog. So going up to the cabin was almost like a second home. When my dad would get off work on a Friday, we'd pack up the car. And we'd all go up there and stay. And your brother named the cabin that your dad built Zephyr View after the California Zephyr train that went through the area. Would you mind reading from your childhood diary some of what you wrote about those visits? Okay, now this is my diary, and I started my diary in 1939, and I wrote in it every day for five years. I have a lot of names in here of my friends, and then I went to the camp 
called Camp Nazoni in 1939 on a Sunday. I went on the train and we caught the train down there at the Union Station. So I spent a week at the camp with the girls. There were girls from all over the country, from uh, Chicago, Kansas City, and Missouri. So I met a lot of new friends. And of course, up at the camp, we did a lot of fun things. And we um, did a lot of hiking. We washed our socks in the creek. We did a lot of fun things down at the creek. And we had campfires. And uh, my dad sent me a dollar up there. And I received that dollar on Thursday. So the mail must have been pretty good. But I didn't know what I was spending on. But we had a little, there was a post office and a store down at the hill, down the hill. And so we went there and we spent and got candy and stuff. And uh, I was sorry I had to leave. I left on a Saturday and the train was late, but I got home about 4.10. My dad picked me up at the station. That sounds like so much fun. And what a treasure to have that diary. Judge Jackson, your mom brought you to the cabin from the time you were an infant. What childhood memories do you have from Zephyr's View? You know, my memories are very similar to my mom. Uh, Going up to the Zephyr View cabin was like a vacation. You know, it was an oasis for young people, young kids. You could hike the mountains. You could go to the uh, creek and throw rocks. You could go fishing. You could go across the creek and swim in the ponds. You could, from the cabin, watch the California Zephyr go by and the freight trains go by. And at night, you could look at the stars and the Milky Way. Uh, So it was a treasure to be able to go up there as kids. There's a place at Lincoln Hills called Wink's Lodge, and your mom mentioned it. What is the history there? Well, the history is is that uh, Wings Lodge is one of the very few Black-owned resorts back in the 20s. And when I say Black-owned resorts, there were only several of them. There was Idlewild in Michigan. There was Oak Bluffs in uh, Martha's Vineyard. There was American Beach in Florida. And the only Black-owned resort west of the Mississippi was Winks Lodge. And Winks Lodge was a six-room mountain lodge in which uh, Black people from across the country would come to Denver to recreate basically from Memorial Day to Labor Day. A lot of the luminaries, the Black luminaries that would come to Denver that would be musical artists or those individuals that would go down to Five Points to play in the clubs at Five Points. After performing in Five Points, they would come up to Wink's Lodge to recreate. You know, they did that because uh, back in those days, and we're talking about the 20s, 30s, 40s, and even the 50s, Black performers, Black literary artists could not stay in the white hotels because of segregation. So they would if they were not staying, let's say, in a rooming house for that was owned by Black people in Denver, 
they would go up to Wings Lodge and uh, stay there. And tell us about some of the people who stayed there. There are a lot of really famous names. Well, when I say luminaries, if we're talking about musicians, there were individuals like Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Louis Armstrong, Lena Horne. If we're talking about some of the political activists during those days, Whitney Young, who was the first black urban league director, he would stay at Wink's Lodge on his way to going to Aspen for a think tank in Aspen. There were some uh, authors, writers of books. Zora Neale Hurston, she was a part of the Harlem Renaissance. She uh, would come to Wink's Lodge. Wow, I love her book, The Eyes Are Watching God. You still visit Zephyr View to get away from the Denver rat race. Can you tell us about some of the guests that you've invited to share your experience? Well, when you say I still visit, um, I have been going up there for 74 years. I'm 74 years of age. And like my mom, we probably, I probably have been there at least every two weeks for my whole life. So when you ask me who are some of my guests that have gone up there with me, let's say basically family and friends. One of the real treats that we do at the cabin is I have an annual constitutional law retreat. Five individuals who I have known since uh, the 1960s during my college days, we go up to the cabin once a year when the Sam Carey Bar Association was formed. And that uh, the Sam Carey Bar Association is the Association of Black Lawyers and Judges. It was formed in 1971. It was the first specialty bar association here in Colorado. We would have uh, mountain retreats up at my cabin. It's an important place in a lot of ways. It's almost a century old now. Do you still have family treasures decorating your cabin? Yeah, we have treasures that bring back both positive and negative images. I can give you an example. My great-grandfather, when he came from Missouri... He brought with him a sign that said, colored restroom only. So above our restroom, our bathroom in the cabin, this wooden sign hangs above the uh, bathroom so that we will always remember our history and always remember the hurdles that we had to overcome. We, I have other memorabilia in the cabin. My grandmother graduated from an historic black college. Lincoln University in Missouri. I have her college graduation certificate that she received in 1917. So that's a memorabilia that we have in the cabin that also talks about our past, talks about the period of time when uh, Black people could not go to any other colleges other than historic Black colleges. Hmm. There's a lot of history there. Now, I want to bring 14-year-old Nelani Benson into the conversation. She's been coming to the resort with a group of girls since middle school. Hi, Nelani. Hi. What brought you to Lincoln Hills? I used to go to a heart and hand. It's an after-school program. And one of my teachers gave me a scholarship to go to the program. And I was so happy about it because I love horses. And that's what got me to the program. Do you ride horses when you're out there? Yes. That sounds really exciting. What else do you enjoy at Lincoln Hills? The history behind it was very awesome to see. We did um, hike up to the lodges and stuff, like Wink's Lodge. We saw um, the cabin that 
Lena Horn stayed in, and there was tons of pictures of her all throughout the cabin. It was so amazing to see. Oh, wow. Now, Black folks have faced and still face racism when it comes to access to the outdoors. And we heard from Mrs. Jackson earlier about what made Lincoln Hills special, especially during the segregation era. What makes it special to you now? The history behind it, definitely. Just to see how far we've come. Because at the time, that was one of the very few places that Black people can go. And now, we're allowed pretty much anywhere. Nailani, I would love for you to take over my job for a little bit. What questions do you have for Mrs. Jackson? One of my questions is, what advice would you give me to deal with um, discrimination or racism? Oh, that's a good question. You just stand up for your right and be who you are. Don't let anyone say you can't do something or you can't go here. Always be yourself. And all. And for one thing, always vote. I never missed a vote, even for the school board. I went to caucus. When I went to the caucus, I was able to be a judge. And I was a judge for over 15 years. So I'll tell you, do the things that you want to do. If you can't get through the door, go through the window. Be sure and keep your dreams. Always do what you want to dream, what you dream of being. And just be who you are. And always tell your history. Don't let anyone not tell you to not say this or not say that. Always write your history down. I like to write. So write a lot. Write a journal. Write things down because so many things I have forgotten, but I have written journals ever since I was 15 years old. So I could always go back to my journals and read what I've written and uh, remember these memories I had when I was young. And um, just always just follow your, just follow your dreams. Dream big though. Thank you. And also, um, I have a copy of the Green Book. I just got it today. And I'm so excited to read. I always have loved reading about our history because there are so many interesting things that people don't know, especially in school. Because I don't, I don't think in the past few years I've had a Black History Month lesson. So I think this book is very important. I think the fact that you've written down everything you've done in your diary is also very important. So thank you. It is. It's very important. Just always go by your what you feel, what you want to do, what you want to become. That's really wonderful advice. Thank you all, all three of you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for asking me. Thank you very much. I enjoyed. Yes, thank you for having me. Denver District Court Judge Gary Jackson with his mother, Nancy Jackson, and 14-year-old Nailani Benson-Wortham, sharing their stories from Lincoln Hills, which was the only Black-owned resort west of the Mississippi when it was built in the 1920s. When we come back, 
what changing political viewpoints in Douglas County could mean to the entire state. And a Colorado Springs artist gets a big nod for a mural of his daughter. We'll talk about the message behind the art. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Early on in the protests for racial justice, Colorado Matters got reading recommendations to better understand this moment in America. And now we invite you to read one of those books with us. The History of White People by Nell Irvin Painter chronicles this idea how whiteness is an artificial thing as well. Pick up the book, The History of White People, then join us for a live video chat with the author, September 22nd. Details at CPR.org slash turn the page. In most past elections, Democrats have generally written off Douglas County. Its wealthy suburbs and rural enclaves have long been solidly Republican. But this year, Democrats see opportunity there. And CPR's Benta Berkland reports that if they can pull off an upset, it may be a sign of Colorado's political future. Douglas County is a powerhouse for the current Colorado Republican Party. The top leaders at the Statehouse are from here. And Democrats acknowledge that in the modern era, no part of Douglas County has ever been viable for them. Matt McGovern heads the House Majority Project and works to elect Democratic state lawmakers. He says Douglas County is changing, at least in places like Highlands Ranch. As demographic change continues to occur in Highlands Ranch and as more previously Republican voters become disaffected with Donald Trump and the current state of the Republican Party. Democrats say they plan to spend money to try to win the House seat in this Denver suburban district. They'll need to win over more voters like Anthony Alders. He's a veteran and lives in Highlands Ranch with his wife and children. He says he became an unaffiliated voter because of Trump. And this fall, he plans to only vote for Democrats. I was a registered Republican. I had a Romney sign in my yard in 2012. He says Republicans haven't stood up to Trump on fiscal issues or what he sees as mismanagement of the military, like pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. He's just a disaster of a person and a big disaster as a president. Uh, I'm uh, disappointed in the way the uh, Republican Party let him take over. While Douglas County communities like Parker and Castle Rock remain solidly red, more than a fifth of the precincts in Highlands Ranch voted for Hillary Clinton. But those voters didn't vote blue all the way down the ballot. They also re-elected Republican House Representative Kevin Van Winkle by a healthy margin. And in 2020, Van Winkle says he expects Trump to do better in his district. For some reason, there were thousands of voters, in fact, that did not support our president, but did support me. I don't know if that will be the case this time because he has a track record that people can look to. He cut taxes, he moved the embassy to Jerusalem. Democrats think the president's record will hurt Ben Winkle, not help him. His opponent, Democrat Jennifer Mikowski, is a physician's assistant. She wants to increase teacher pay and lower health care costs. She says she's heard from fiscal conservatives who've left the Republican Party because they feel it isn't inclusive enough. I believe in LGBTQ rights, immigrant rights, and that was the sole heart of me becoming a registered Democrat in the first place. But in the essence of things, I believe in 
not being political, being open to looking at things from both sides of the table. The candidates are stressing bipartisanship. Van Winkle is running in part on all the bills he's passed with Democrats, while also pledging to hold Democrats in check. This race won't affect control of the legislature. Democrats already have a wide majority in the House. But Republican political consultant Tyler Sandberg says losing a seat in Douglas County would be a bad sign for Republicans. Douglas County is the epicenter where Republicans have to prove that we want to be a long-term governing party. We want to be back in the majority. And that's going to come down to, can we field good candidates like Kevin Van Winkle on a regular basis out of Douglas County? Not surprisingly, with a pandemic and a presidential race, most voters CPR talked to here aren't thinking much about the statehouse seat. Amy Carlson lost her job due to the coronavirus. She's a Republican and says she believes President Trump gets blamed for things that are not his fault. And once she's voted for Trump, she plans to support Republicans further down her ballot, too. You'll see a lot of voices like mine, but we're silenced because of all these crazy, over-the-top, outspoken far left people. So, And that doesn't mean we don't vote and that doesn't mean we don't win things. We just don't always voice our opinion because we're not as hateful. Another longtime Republican voter here says she's seen a shift in Highlands Ranch as more Democrats have moved in from Denver and other parts of the state and country. She says she's fine with that. She just wishes people wouldn't bring their politics with them. But if this trend continues those politics could eventually become the new face of Highlands Ranch. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. When artist Greg Deal of Peyton painted a 77-foot-tall mural of his daughter Sage on the side of a building in Colorado Springs, he was hoping to share a message, a message about the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls in this country. Now his mural, called Take Back the Power, has earned him the first place award and $10,000 from the city's Arts on the Streets program. We first introduced you to Greg Deal last month. Hamu, new Greg Deal, Minania. New Kiriuri Takata. My name is Greg Deal, and I'm a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute Tribe. In the mural, his 14-year-old daughter wears a t-shirt from her favorite punk band, The Interrupters. A bright red handprint covers half her face. First and foremost, this was meant to be about the seemingly silent epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit with the red handprint. Um, But uh, another aspect of this is The fact that I wanted to recognize the modern existence of indigenous people with modern elements and the intersection of subcultures with being an indigenous person, the duality of our existence. And so the T-shirt and the way she wears her hair and all these little small elements are meant to point in that direction as well. Murder is the third leading cause of death among American Indian and Alaska Native women. But there's a lot that's not known because of inadequate data. A recent study by the Urban Indian Health Institute found that of the 5,700 cases of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls reported in 2016, only 116 were logged in the Department of Justice database. When I was actually working on this particular piece, the mother of Sherry Barker, a young woman in Colorado Springs, a native woman who was born and raised in Colorado Springs, who was shot and killed four years ago in front of her six-year-old son, came to the mural while I was working and introduced herself. Um, I, I found that to just be so incredibly overwhelming and just 
incredibly difficult to process in the reality of these things as it's hit Colorado Springs and what kind of effect that's had on the indigenous community here. And what conversations have you had with your daughter, Sage, about these issues as you painted this portrait of her? We've had very frank conversations. I mean, the conversations that happen in our household are, you know, um, oftentimes different than a lot of other families because we talk about history and we talk about um, our people. We talk about language and we talk about these statistics as just simply the reality of our existence, that we have to navigate these things the dehumanization of indigenous people, which is really where I think a lot of this stuff stems from. So the, the, the concepts of stereotypes and mascots and, you know, things of that nature contribute to dehumanizing people. And in this specific case, uh, women and girls and uh, LGBTQ plus, and that that effect is very true that she has to understand and recognize that she's part of that statistic as she moves forward in her life to protect herself and as I move forward as her father and, uh, and of course, her mother as well to protect our children. The mural of Deal's daughter is on the side of an old brick office building in Colorado Springs. One thing that I was really attracted to about doing this piece and doing it as big as it is, is um, this idea of representation, that there might be uh, a child that sees this and recognizes, you know, the face or recognizes an aspect of it of seeing themselves. Or maybe, you know, a young person sees me doing it and maybe I look like their dad. You know, there's this this level of representation that traditionally does not exist in public spaces is a, is a really empowering thing for these marginalized communities where representation is either completely false or just doesn't exist at all. And so participating on that level, having a piece of representation in a space that is traditionally Southern youth land, I think is incredibly empowering and important because, uh, like I said before, you know, representation matters. That's Greg Deal, a Pyramid Lake Paiute artist and activist. He lives in Peyton, Colorado. His mural of his daughter, Sage, called Take Back the Power, just won the top award in the 22nd annual Art on the Streets exhibit in downtown Colorado Springs. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.